Alrighty, 2 Samuel 20. Let's dig in. Now a troublemaker named Sheba, son of Bikri, a Benjamite, happened to be there. He sounded the trumpet and shouted, We have no share in David, no part in Jesse's son. Every man to his tent, Israel. So all the men of Israel deserted David to follow Sheba, son of Bikri. But the men of Judah stayed by their king all the way from Jordan to Jerusalem. When David returned to his palace in Jerusalem, he took the ten concubines he had left to take care of the palace and put them in a house under guard. He provided for them but had no sexual relations with them. They were kept in confinement till the day of their death, living as widows. Then the king said to Amasa, Summon the men of Judah to come to me within three days and be here yourself. But when Amasa went to summon Judah, he took longer than the time the king had set for him. David said to Abishai, Now Sheba, son of Bikri, will do us more harm than Absalom did. Take your master's men and pursue him, or he will find fortified cities and escape from us. So Job's men and the Kerathites and Pelathites and all the mighty warriors went out under the command of Abishai. They marched out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, son of Bikri. While they were at the great rock in Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them. Joab was wearing his military tunic, and strapped over it at his waist was a belt with a dagger in its sheath. As he stepped forward, it dropped out of its sheath. Joab said to Amasa, How are you, my brother? Then Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. Amasa was not on his guard against the dagger in Joab's hand, and Joab plunged it into his belly, and his intestines spilled out on the ground. Without being stabbed again, Amasa died. Then Joab and his brother Abishai pursued Sheba, son of Bikri. One of Job's men stood beside Amasa and said, Whoever favors Job and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the middle of the road, and the men saw that all the troops came to a halt there. When he realized that everyone who came up to Amasa stopped, he dragged him from the road into a field and threw a garment over him. After Amasa had been removed from the road, everyone went on with Joab to pursue Sheba, son of Bikri. Sheba passed through all the tribes of Israel to Abel, Beth, Makkah, and through the entire region of the Bikrites, who gathered together and followed him. All the troops with Joab came and besieged Sheba in Abel, Beth, Makkah, and they built a siege ramp up to the city, and it stood against the outer fortifications. While they were battering the wall to bring it down, a wise woman called from the city, Listen, listen, tell Joab to come here so I can speak to him. He went toward her and she asked, Are you Joab? I am, he answered. She said, listen to what your servant has to say. I'm listening, he said. She continued, long ago they used to say, get your answer at Abel. And that settled it. We are peaceful and faithful in Israel. You are trying to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Why do you want to swallow up the Lord's inheritance? Far be it from me, Joab replied. Far be it from me to swallow up or destroy. That is not the case. A man called Sheba, son of Bikri, from the hill country of Ephraim, has lifted up his hand against the king, against David. Hand over this one man, and I'll, be, and I'll withdraw from the city. The woman said to Joab, his head will be thrown to you from the wall. Then the woman went to all the people with her wise advice, and they cut off the head of Sheba, son of Bikri, and threw it to Joab. So he sounded the trumpet, and his men dispersed from the city, each returning to his home. And Joab went back to the king in Jerusalem. Joab was over Israel's entire army. Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, was over the Karathites and Pelathites. Adoniram was in charge of forced labor. 
Jehoshaphat, son of Alihud, was recorder. Shiva was secretary. Zadok and Abiathar were priests. And Ira the Jerite was David's priest. Thanks, Bridge. I think the Bible reading this week might be rated as, what, what do you reckon, MA 15 plus for Gaul. I mean, it's a Bible reading, but, you know, if it was a movie. Um, is, this, is this on the edge of ringing? Or is it maybe it's my ears? No, it might be okay. All right. Maybe it is my ears now. Let's pray and then uh, more importantly look at uh, God's word, more importantly than talking about uh, ringing ears. Father God, uh, we thank you for your word and uh, we ask that you give us insight now. We ask that you would uh, help us to understand you and your kingdom better, that we would live the way you call us to. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. How hopeful are you feeling about life in this world in 2023? Maybe on a scale of 1 to 10, have a chat to the person next to you for a minute. How hopeful are you feeling about life in this world in 2023? Go. If you need some inspiration... Oops. Kezia. Slides are... All right, how how are we going? We got some. We got uh, what? What do we got? You want to give me some numbers? Got any twos, zeros, nines, two, four, three, ten? We got some tens. Yep, um, four. Interesting question. Maybe it depends where your hope sort of rests. If you're after some inspiration, there you are. There's an inspiring picture of some rocks, uh, which may have. <laughs> it, it might have some relevance. Just just play with that in your minds. We might put our hope in, in different things. We might put our hope in various organisations or institutions or communities or nations and we might look to those things for security and stability. But, you know, there's a lot that is broken in this world, isn't there? I reckon if we're honest, there's a lot that is unstable. Maybe you like that pile of rocks there you have. There's a lot that's unstable in this world. I mean, the, the reports we hear from Israel, from Gaza are horrific and violence and war is, is all too common throughout our world. In closer to home, we may feel sort of uh, sheltered from such things in our relatively stable democracy. But even in our organisations and culture, in our nation, in our communities, there is a lot that is unstable, that is uncertain. We might put our hope in those things, and at times there's, there's good reason to, there may, there may be good cause for that. There is good that we can do. There's good that can be achieved, and yet all too often these human organisations do prove to be unstable and uncertain. So how should, we, how should we live amongst the instability 
in which we find ourselves? Should we despair and give up? Or should we rally and double down and strive to, to make things better? To, should we cling to whatever hope we can find? Now, this chapter in, uh, one, in 2 Samuel, chapter 20, has, I believe, some answers for us as we, we reach the, the end of, of this story of David's kingdom in, in 1 and 2 Samuel. Uh, the, the next uh, four chapters has an important epilogue, which we're going to look at. But this is the end of the, the account of the rise of the fall and of the restoration of David's kingdom. And here we have a, a snapshot of David's restored kingdom. What was his kingdom like as it, as it came back together? Uh, this has some lessons for us about living in this unstable world. Last week, we, uh, in chapter 19, we saw David um, being made king again after Absalom, his rebellious son, had been defeated. But this was hardly a uh, united, glorious occasion. There were disputes between the different factions within the nation, the, the, 12, uh, sorry, the 10 tribes of the, to the north of Israel. They, was, they squabbled with the tribe of Judah in the south, and, and Judah asserted itself against them. And, and it's an unstable situation at the end of chapter 19. So it's not surprising that chapter 20 begins with the instability of another rebellion. Verse 1, we read, Now a troublemaker named Sheba, son of Bichri, a Benjamite, happened to be there. Notice this is the, the, the situation just continues. He sounded the trumpet and shouted, We have no share in David, no part in Jesse's son. Every man to his tent, Israel. We have rebellion again. A rejection of David as king. As if Sheba's saying, there's no share, there's no life, there's no inheritance to be found in, in following David as king, this son of Jesse. It's a, a put down that, that Saul, David's predecessor, used of him as well. And Sheba, like Absalom, calls Israel to abandon David. And so verse 2, So all the men of Israel deserted David to follow Sheba, son of Bichri. But the men of Judah stayed by their king all the way from the Jordan to Jerusalem. So David finds himself back where he started. He's king, but he's king over Judah, whereas the northern tribes of Israel don't recognize him. Once again, his kingdom, though restored, is characterized by the instability of rebellion. And secondly, it's characterized by sadness. The sadness of his kingdom is confirmed as we read on verse 3. When David returned to his palace in Jerusalem, he took the ten concubines he had left to take care of the palace and put them in a house under guard. He provided for them but had no sexual relations with them. They were kept in confinement till the day of their death, living as widows. This is so tragically sad. These were the, the women whom Absalom had, had violated in an act of profound defiance of David to, to make himself, as Ahithophel's advisor uh, put it, obnoxious to his father. David returns to Jerusalem and the first thing we're told he does is he addresses the, the awful plight of these ten women. Now, on the one hand, it seems like he, he deals somewhat compassionately with them. He, he put them in a house, he provided for them, um, the house was under guard, but that may be more to protect them than to imprison them. But he didn't cast them out. He didn't you know, just send them out. He maintained a responsibility for their welfare. And yet David is also, he distances himself from them. 
Perhaps he was distancing himself from the, his earlier practice of, of having concubines in the first place, in, in which case it illustrates the, the ongoing horror of sin, even in the undoing of it. And the picture at the end of verse 3 there is so, so tragically sad. They were kept in confinement till the day of their death, living as widows. These women represent something important about David's kingdom. His kingdom had had suffered the consequences of sinful men. I mean, David was responsible for their sadness, as was Absalom. Despite his attempts to care for them, it turns out that David was, was not the kind of king who would wipe away every tear. We see the inadequacy, the instability, the, the sadness of David's kingdom. Well, then after dealing with the concubines, David sets about dealing with this threat of this rebel, Sheba. We're at point three, the futile search for stability. Our first step is, was to gather a military force. So verse four says, oops, the oh, no, next one, sorry. Then the king uh, said to Amasar, summon the men of Judah to come to me within three days and be here yourself. Now Amasar was uh, David's nephew, you might remember um, a few weeks ago with that uh, slightly confusing family tree, David Amasa was David's nephew. Amasa had been made uh, commander of Absalom's army when Absalom was, was uh, fighting against David and his men. Then when Absalom was killed, David sent message to tell Amasa that, that David would make him commander of his army in place of Joab. That was an extraordinary act of grace. I mean, Amasa had sided with Absalom leading his army against David, the Lord's anointed. But the king showed him grace and called him into his service. I think we ought to sympathise with this ourselves. We're, we're people who have rebelled against the Lord and yet we've received even more profound grace from him and been called into his service. Amos's first task is to go and summon the men of Judah. He has three days to do it. But we read verse 5. But when Amasa went to summon Judah, he took longer than the time the king had set for him. That is, he failed to return in time. Now, why is this? Maybe, maybe he had some difficulty persuading people that he was legit. I mean, it wasn't that long ago that he was fighting for the other side. Or maybe he was not so keen on his new appointment. Maybe he was spurning the grace of the king. Maybe he was half-hearted in his efforts to serve the king. At any rate, Amasa failed the king's command. And so David turned to another of his commanders, to Abishai. Now Abishai was, remember, one of the three men who had led David's troops into battle against Absalom alongside his brother Joab and alongside Uttai the Gittite, Eat the Git. Um, it's noticeable that David uh, deployed Abishai, not Joab. I mean, Joab had been the, the commander of David's army, but no doubt David would have known by this stage of Joab's hand in Absalom's death, and David had already made it very clear that he wanted Amasa instead of Joab. And so verse 6, David said to Abishai, Now Sheba, son of Bichri, will do us more harm than Absalom did. Take your master's men and pursue him, or he will find fortified cities and escape from us. Uh, David wants Abishai, the, the men, to pursue and remove this rebel Sheba before he can escape, before he can gain strength. And so notice verse 7, so Joab's men 
uh, and, the, and the Kerathites and Pelathites and all the mighty warriors went out under the command of Abishai. They marched out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, son of Bichri. Um, David had avoided Joab. I mean, he'd appointed Amasa, then he'd appointed uh, Abishai. But notice it's Joab's men who... Sorry, I've gone one, two, five, and I... There we are. Um, it's Joab's men... No, we're missing a slide, Sorry. Um, Joab's men who ended up going out under the, the, the control of Abishai. Then they meet, um, meet Amasa, verse 8. It says, while they were at the great rock in Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them. Was this planned? Was it just coincidental? We don't know. But there's Amasa and enter stage right, none other than Joab. Verse 8 continues. There we are. Is that it? No, that's not it. That's verse 9. I can't see from there. Um, uh, verse 8 continues. Joab was... Where is it, Joab? I lost my spot here. Joab was wearing his military tunic and strapped over it at his waist was a belt with a dagger in its sheath. As he stepped forward, it dropped out of its sheath. Of course it did just accidentally found itself out of its sheath and in Joab's hand. As he greets Amasa, verse 9, Joab said to Amasa, How are you, my brother? Then Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. Amasa was not on his guard against the dagger in Joab's hand, and Joab plunged it into his belly and his intestines spilled out on the ground. Without being stabbed again, Amasa died. Then Joab and his brother Abishai pursued Sheba, son of Bichri. Joab's been, been ousted as commander of David's army, but he's not going to stand by and let that happen. He's a man of action. He's a man of bloody action. He kills Amasa brutally, seizes control of the army. He calls on the troops to look, look to him. Verse 11, where it says, One of uh, Joab's men stood beside Amasa and said, Whoever favours Joab, whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. Saying, if you're for David, Joab's your man, follow him. Now, it seems the troops were not so sure at this point. So we read verse 12. Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the middle of the road, and the man saw that all the troops came to a halt there. When he realised that everyone who came up to Amasa stopped, he dragged him from the road into a field and threw a garment over him. It's a horrific scene. Amos is wallowing in his blood and causes pause for the troops. Do they really want to follow Joab, a man who's done this to the commander appointed by the king? This man deals with the evidence, drags Amos from the road, throws a garment over, not, not even so much as a shallow grave. David's restored kingdom is a place of violence, of betrayal. But the campaign to deal with the rebel continues. Sheba escaped to Abel, to a town in the north of Israel. I don't know if you can see on the map, but it's right at the top of the map there. And they came all the way from the bottom. Joab's pursued him all the way. He's determined to deal with this threat. Sheba escaped into a fortified city, the thing that David was concerned and wanted to avoid. But not to worry, Joab and the troops besieged the city. They build a siege ramp. They started battering the wall to bring it down. Joab is going about things in his usual way with brutality and violence. 
But then a wise woman intervenes, verse 16. A wise woman called from the city, Listen, listen, tell Joab to come here so I can speak to him. He went toward her and she asked, Are you Joab? I am, he answered. She said, Listen to what your servant has to say. I am listening, he said. It's interesting how the, the narrative slows right down. We get this detail of the conversation back and forwards and we're, we're poised, ready to listen, just as Joab, this bloodthirsty man of action, is, says, I'm listening. Verse 18, she continued, Long ago, they used to say, get your answer at Abel, and that settled it. We are the peaceful and faithful in Israel. You're trying to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Why do you want to swallow up the Lord's inheritance? We're a place of wisdom, of peace, of, of faithfulness, the Lord's inheritance. Why, do you want, why would you destroy that, Joab? Joab's response is kind of laughably ironic. Verse 20, he says, Far be it from me, far be it from me to swallow up or destroy. And the irony, we, we've just read what he did to Amasa, lying on the road, wallowing in his blood with his intestines, spilled, I mean, no, 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 no I, I don't destroy. Verse 21, he protests, that's not the case. A man named Sheba, son of Bichri, from the hill country of Ephraim, has lifted up his hand against the king, against, um, um, against David. Hand over this one man and I'll withdraw from the city. Again, notice the irony here. Joab has just lifted up his hand literally against the king's commander Amasa. Joab claims to be defending the king even as he takes control, serves himself and does pretty much whatever he thinks is best. The woman says to, said to Joab simply, his head will be thrown to you from the wall. Then the woman went to all the people with her wise advice and they cut off the head of Sheba, son of Bichri, and threw it to Joab. This wise woman comes up with a far less destructive solution than battering down the wall and destroying the city. They deal swiftly with just the rebel. And I think it highlights the, the contrast. Joab's violence is a far cry from the wisdom, peace and faithfulness of the Lord's inheritance. And so this Futile search for stability finished with Joab calling off the siege. Verse 22. So he sounded the trumpet and his men dispersed from the city, each returning to his home. And Joab went back to the king in Jerusalem. Joab went back to the king in Jerusalem. Kind of picture him there with his with Sheba's head under his arm. Imagine that meeting. I mean, David's sent out Amasa, then Abishai. But who should return as self-appointed leader of the army? Joab, the man who killed David's son and is now brutally disposed of two army commanders. The restored kingdom of David was an unstable place. It was not what it once was. And I think that's the point that's made by this, this last list of David's officials in verse 23. You might read this list of things and people and strange names and think, why is this here? Why, why is the writer of 2 Samuel thought it necessary to put this list of all these people here? The interesting thing is, is that there's a very similar list, a number of chapters earlier in 2 Samuel chapter 8, at the high point of David's kingdom. 
And it's interesting comparing these two lists, noticing the similarities and the differences. Here, I'll put them side by side. Uh, Firstly, notice the similarities. Joab was over the army. Jehoshaphat was the recorder. Uh, Zadok, Abiathar and his son Ahimelech were priests. Uh, The secretary may have changed, or perhaps it was just a variation of the same name. Uh, Benaiah was over the Kerethites and the Pelethites. There's the similarities. But notice the differences. We now have forced labour. David's kingdom has taken on a new brutality. David's priest, or it could be his uh, advisor, his counsellor, he's no longer his sons, but a foreigner. You can understand that David's family relationships have taken a bit of a a hit uh, with the recent events. There's a different emphasis with Joab's role. He goes from being over the army to being over Israel's entire army. It highlights Joab's control, not just of Judah, but of, of all of Israel and all of Israel's army. But what's the big thing that's missing from this second list or the big person that's missing from this second list? Anyone? David. Where's David? David's barely mentioned other than the fact that he has a priest. That's a big contrast from the first list where in chapter 8, the the, the high point of his reign, we have this glorious statement that David reigned over all Israel, doing what was just and right for all his people. But here in chapter 20, it says nothing about David and his reign. No longer was the kingdom characterised by David reigning with justice, with righteousness for all his people. Rather, it's become a place of instability, of rebellion, of sadness, brutality. Largely under the self-interested hand of Joab. David's kingdom earlier had, had given us a glimpse of the kingdom of God, a place where justice and righteousness is found. And yet David's kingdom, like all human organisations and institutions and communities, it, it was corrupted and unstable because of human sin. And so we're left here at the end of This account of David's kingdom with this picture of the instability of his restored kingdom. And it can only point us forward in hope to the coming kingdom of God. To God's kingdom, which unlike David's kingdom cannot be shaken, as Hebrews 12 verse 28 says. Where in the words of Revelation Chapter 11, verse 15, it says, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. The kingdom of God is characterized not by instability and rebellion and sadness, but by righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, as Romans 14, 17 says. So this picture of the, the unstable kingdom of, of David points us forward in hope to the kingdom of God found in Jesus. Let me draw out a few brief implications for us. Firstly, we should be real about the instability of human organisations and institutions and communities and nations. We should be real that they will be corrupted because of human sin. So don't put your hope in the, in the people and things of this world. Put your hope in God and his appointed Messiah, Jesus. I think this realism as an implication even for our view of church and how we relate as a church. I mean, churches are 
earthly expressions of Christ's glorious heavenly church. And that's, a, that's an amazing thing. And yet they will still have the character of a human organisation, which at times will be corrupted because of human sin. Our churches can and do experience the destabilising effects of disunity and sin and self-interest. I mean, there's a reason the Scripture's calling us as followers of Jesus to, in the words of Ephesians 4, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with each other in love, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Or in Colossians 3, it says, Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. I mean, it may be stating the obvious, but we need to bear with each other and forgive one another because there are things that will happen that need to be born with and forgiven. So setting our hope on the kingdom of God will mean that we're realistic in our view of human organisations and communities, even and including our view of our church. I mean, our church, which hopefully, empowered by the Spirit of God, as as he teaches us through his word, will be increasingly uh, reflecting God's kingdom as we each seek to follow Christ. And yet it will still at times be unstable because, frankly, it's made up of sinful people like you and me. Second implication... Beware of underhanded ways. Uh, Joab got the job done. He removed the rebel. But he was far from godly and honourable in the way that he went about it. He may have feigned allegiance to the king. You know, I'm, I'm for David, follow me. But really he was just motivated by his own self-interest. The Apostle Paul presents the contrasting way of the kingdom of God. He says, 2 Corinthians 4 verse 2, rather, we've renounced secret and shameful ways. We don't use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. As people of God's kingdom, we ought to have nothing to do with deception, distortion of the truth, but be people of of righteousness, of peace, of joy in the Holy Spirit. As we live not with our hope in the unstable kingdoms of this world but rather as we live for the kingdom of God as we follow the perfect king Jesus whose kingdom cannot be shaken who rules with perfect wisdom and peace whose reign is characterized by justice and righteousness for all David and his unstable kingdom points us forward in hope to the greatest son of David who is completely worthy of our trust and who calls on us to live not for the unstable things of this world but to live for him, to live for his kingdom in all that we do. So friends, look to Jesus, put your trust in him and live with him as your king. We're going to sing in response to God's word. So I invite the musos to come up. We're going to sing crown him with many crowns it's a great great song to sing it's it's a call to crown jesus as king in our lives king over all crown him with many crowns